Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. Thanks so much for joining in wherever you may be in the world. Glad you were able to join in for this podcast. So on today's podcast, I will be chatting with two doctors who were on the podcast before, Dr. Joel Lexchin and Dr. Lisa Parker, and they will be discussing how drug companies influence patient groups, patient groups. So they'll first explain what patient groups are, as there's a lot of variety, they do a lot of different things, some very good things, and why drug companies have taken an interest in these groups, how they fund them, influence them, and why that matters. So in general, this is another way that industry can really influence the health system and health policy. So I thought it would be an interesting topic to explore on the podcast. If you guys are frequent listeners, you know that I've been focusing on industry's influence on the healthcare system for this year, just because I think we need to address it uh, if we wanna rebuild trust in health system, so to speak, um, and, and, and make the system better really for people for people instead of profit. So just as a reminder, and just so you know, their two episodes are up on causes or cures that they did previously. So you guys can search for those and listen to them. And I hope that you do. Dr. Lexgen is a professor at York University where he teaches pharmaceutical policy. He's an emergency medicine doctor, an ER doc, a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences, a member of the Ontario Drug Quality and Therapeutics Committee, and he was chair of the Drugs and Pharmacotherapy Committee of the Ontario Medical Association. Dr. Parker is an honorary senior lecturer at the School of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney. She's on the Faculty of Medicine and Health. She is also a clinician who works in oncology, and her research focuses on public health ethics and policy. So that said, let's connect to these two doctors and see what they have to say. One second. All right, I guess we can just start. You guys ready? (laughs) Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, So on the line, we have Dr. Joel Lection from Canada um, and Dr. Lisa Parker, who's in Australia. They are repeat guests on Causes or Cures. Um, and both of your episodes, I don't know if you guys listened to them, but, uh, I got a lot of great feedback on them. So, um, people were really, um, interested and, and, you know, so I'm excited to have you back on. Um, thanks Sarah. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. no, it was great. very nice. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, it's sort of like just shining a light on an area, you know, that people just don't really, a lot of people, I mean, some people might, you know, in research and medicine, but a lot of lay people just don't, you know, it doesn't, they just don't know about it. So, um, so the topic today is we're, con- I'm continuing my exploration on this podcast really with, with, you know, uh, the pharmaceutical industry's influence on health and health policy. Specifically today, we were going to talk about, uh, drug companies, how they influence patient groups or patient advocacy groups, which I know both of you guys have studied, um, and I've read some papers that you, that you wrote on this topic, but um, I guess, can we start maybe by um, defining what a patient group is, who, who makes up a patient group and, and what they do? Whoever wants to jump in, feel free. 
Well, I think you need to um, distinguish between patient groups and consumer groups because they, um, well, they they may have the same goals. They're they're different in the sense that patient groups are typically people made up of people who have a particular disease or condition um, and are looking to get drugs on the market for that product, for that disease or advanced diagnosis of the disease. Whereas consumer groups tend to be more concerned about pharmaceutical policy. Um, so how are drugs approved? How is safety being monitored of drugs? Um, how much do drugs cost? Okay. Yeah, I think, uh, and I don't know, I guess, what it's like in the US or Canada, but in Australia, each uh, of our state bodies has some government funding to, um, to support uh, health consumer groups, they're typically called. And yeah, as Joel said, they're more concerned with kind of um, upstream issues like policy, and they're typically uh, geared at, at health services rather than at particular diseases or particular body systems or health conditions. So I would put those in a slightly different category to the more um, perhaps widely understood version of a patient group, which is typically clustered around a body system um, like respiratory disease or heart disease um, or a very specific um, disease itself like uh, prostate cancer or something. So, so I think they are um, a little bit different in, in that the funding is often a bit different and the focus is quite different. Okay, okay. So, yeah. oh, go ahead, Joel. Oh, I was just going to say that I agree. And um, it means that the um, where you look for money tends to be these different kinds of groups, um, the source of their, their revenue tends to be different too. Um, I think with patient groups, it's, it's more easily definable where you go. You, if you need money, you can go to a drug company that's making a, um, a product for the disease that you're concerned about. Whereas if it's a consumer group, focus more on policy, um, at least in Canada, there isn't a place for those groups to go for, for money. So they tend to, um, tend to be more on a, um, a volunteer basis. They don't have full-time staff. Okay, so they don't get the pharmaceutical funding is what you're saying. They don't get it, no, because there's no product involved. No product involved. Um, now, you know, when you hear um, about, you know, patient group, consumer group, or patient advocacy group, um, and I appreciate you, you distinguishing among them, um, a lot of times you think that they're grassroots groups, um, you know, but that's not necessarily the case. Is that correct? Yes, you're correct there, Erin. And I think that's something that um, I guess I was surprised about when I started looking into this a bit more closely. And um, just as an example, I suppose, one of the um, uh, people that I spoke to who was working in a patient group told me the story about how that group came into being. And they said that um, 
that a, a health practitioner actually saw a need um, and they were interested in setting up a group, but they, you know, had you even start, um, but that a, a um, pharmaceutical company had a product that was due to be released in Australia and uh, that fit that bill. And so they were very happy to uh, work with that health practitioner and partner with them and set up a, uh, a patient organisation in Australia to um, what they said, increase awareness of this new product that was going to be on the market. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you can argue that the, to a certain extent there's a little bit of grassroots going on, but, but there certainly was quite a lot of industry um, influence in setting up that group. Yeah, and the same goes in Canada. So mm -hmm. um, this goes back a while, but when the... Um, the triptans, the drugs used to treat migraines were being introduced. There was a, um, a nurse's organization that was created by, I can't remember which company introduced the first triptan, um, but they created this nurse's group um, to publicize the need for this, this particular product. Um, and then when the nurse's group um, was no longer of any value. It just folded. Yeah, that's the flip side, isn't it, of um, a pharmaceutical industry being heavily involved in setting up a group, but when the product goes out of patent, um, often that uh, funding may well be pulled and then the group is left either to fold or to you know, really work very hard to try and find a, a different source of funding which may or may not be, be um, available. Yeah, so who gets, uh, I mean, there's a lot of patient groups out there, I assume, I don't know an exact number. So who gets pharmaceutical funding? And for, for those who don't, um, what, are, what are the other sources of funding to keep them alive? Great question, Erin. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, again, I guess this is something that we looked at in our study and Really, I guess we came to the conclusion that the people who get the funding are the people who have goals, the groups that have goals that align with a pharmaceutical interest um, that is current. So if you have a focus on a disease for which there is currently a drug um, being marketed, so under patent, then you will have a good chance of getting money. If you are focusing on a disease where there is um, no current new um, drug available, then you may really struggle to get money. And then you will look for um, uh, philanthropic donations or you'll look for um, donations from your members or from the community at large. Um, and, and that will probably be what you rely on. Um, but at least in, in Canada, um, we know that patient groups get money, but we often don't know which groups are getting money or how much they're getting. So there's no obligation on the part of drug companies to disclose who they're giving money to. And on the other side, there's no obligation for patient groups to disclose who they're getting money from. Um, and even if you acknowledge that you're getting industry funding, um, it, it's very rare to be able to determine what percentage of the patient group's revenue is coming from drug companies. So is it 1% or 
or is it 75%? Um, and we just don't know. The, the reporting from both sides is incredibly poor. And there's no, they don't have to be transparent. There's no um, act or rule that says you have to say how much you're giving this patient group. No, that's a great point, Joel. Um, in Australia, there is a, some guidance from the, um, the group, the industry group, it's called Medicines Australia, and they um, have a code of conduct that all the drug companies who are members of Industry Australia um, should abide by. And that code of conduct says that they should uh, disclose who they give money to, including patients, you know, which patient groups they give money to. Um, but certainly not all drug companies are members of that, um, of Medicines Australia, so they wouldn't be bound. Not everyone's bound by that code of conduct. Um, and as Joel said, um, studies that have looked at um, from the patient group side, looked at um, the amount of disclosure and how good it is, have found that it's it's not very good. <laughs> so it is very hard for the consumer, for the patient consumer, or for the health practitioner for that matter, to find out um, if the patient group that they're interested in, um, you know, where their money is coming from and what, it, what it's being used for. It's really difficult. And there's um, a, re a systematic review done by um, a former colleague of both Lisa's and mine, um, uh, Alice Fabry, who's now in the UK, um, found that there were four studies that looked at whether or not um, getting money from drug companies um, was associated with the groups taking positions on um, that were favorable to the companies, and they found that in all four cases that was that was true that if you got money from the companies, you were more likely to be favorable to things like direct-to-consumer advertising, which isn't legal either in Canada or Australia, or you were um, opposed to things like um, stricter regulations about opioid prescribing. Mm, interesting, interesting. Uh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if you're getting if you're getting money, I mean, you can potentially get a lot of money from drug companies. They have a lot of money. <laughs> so um, now you mentioned you can't get the specific amounts because they, there's no obligation to report this. But is there a trend? Is there a general trend in terms of um, patient groups getting money from drug companies? Is this a uh, an increasing trend or stays staying the same? Is there any, any information on that? Anecdotally, um, it seems like it's, there are more patient groups that are asking for drug company money. Um, back in the 1990s, the Canadian federal government, you had um, was giving out money to patient groups. And then that um, stopped, I think, in 1993 or 1994. And according to um, a friend of mine who wrote a book about breast cancer um, patient groups, that forced groups then to start turning to industry. Whether or not that's a trend that's been continuing 
Um, no data to say yes or no. Yeah, it's very difficult. I, I think, and perhaps also harking back to your earlier question, Erin, I think it's fair to say there are a lot of patient groups and the numbers of patient groups is probably increasing. Um, I know there's been some work done in the UK on this and, um, you know, there are hundreds of patient groups. It's very difficult to get an exact number and an exact list, certainly in Australia, but there are hundreds and, uh, you know, where's the money coming from? They're all competing with each other for the same pots of money, really. Um, so it does become very difficult if you're trying to run a service that's supporting patients, you know, with the best aims in mind, you really are competing in a quite uh, a crowded field um, for money from the public or money from any other source. And so it's you know, to be expected, I suppose, that you would turn to industry if industry is offering quite substantial funds of money. So, yeah, really, um, uh, there's a lot of competition out there. Yeah, no, I mean, go ahead. I was just going to say industry doesn't only offer money. Um, they may offer um, supports. So you need something produced, a video or a pamphlet or something, and they may offer support in getting that done. Um, they may offer to um, subsidize travel of people of your, from your group to, um, to conferences. Yeah. So industry um, has potentially a lot to offer to these groups, which can be very um, attractive to them um, especially the ones that um, don't have any other sources of, of income. Sure, sure. I mean, fundraising is definitely not easy. Um, and, and that was actually my next question. Um, that, and you highlighted some of the specific, the other ways or like the specific ways that drug companies can uh, benefit these patient groups. So flying to conferences um, or paying for travel, um, market helping with their marketing materials or newsletters, that sort of thing. Is there, uh, anything else that um, any stories, case studies? <laughs> uh, they'll pay for the dinners and um, dinners. You know, coffees. And <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the other things that that patient groups quite like is updates. So I guess if you've got a consumer, uh, you know, a patient base. Um, you, you want to know as a patient group, you want to know what the current technology is or the current um, medication is. So you might, so somebody I spoke to again, for instance, said, oh yeah, we have a, a quarterly meeting or every couple of months mm. with the um, pharmaceutical rep. They, they come up to visit and we have a coffee and they tell me what, you know, what's happening in the pipeline, what, what might be new um, coming through. So, you know, that's something that they, that, that they like to hear about. Um, clinical trials is another one, access to clinical trials potentially. Mm. So somebody else I spoke to said, you know, I've got, I've got the director of the pharmaceutical company here in Australia on speed dial. And if I have a patient that I think, um, um, you know, is really struggling to get access to a drug, I'll ring up the, the patient, the, the industry and say, can you put this patient on a trial or can you give them compassionate access or something like that? So there's a few things besides, yeah, just the money. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that seemed to be a, a great benefit to the patient groups. Hmm. Now, the patient groups are probably 
I would assume if you're getting money from industry, there's a expectation that the, the they might have to do stuff for industry too. Well, that's interesting. We <laughs> we tried to look at that. We in a in a paper that we recently did, we investigated just under a hundred national Canadian patient groups um, to look at whether or not they had policies um, about how they dealt with their um, their funders, specifically industry. And very few of these groups actually had um, a policy. I think it was somewhere maybe one in five or even less of these groups had had policies about um, what should how much money should they accept or how much of their budget should come from a single company or how did they make decisions were companies allowed to have a voice in how the money was being used all those kinds of things that I think would be um, important to know about um, comp- the groups by and large had no policies on those issues. Yeah, we looked at this too, and we found a really broad range of um, views on it. So very few, similar to Joel, few few of the um, patient groups had policies. Um, Some of them had sort of what they called internal policies or informal policies, you know, would it pass the pub test, but but there was often not very much written down, uh, which I think, yeah, is very interesting. In terms of what the patient groups offer to the um, or, or provide, I suppose, to their sponsors, there's a re- again a range of things. Um, often they um, will provide a little bit of marketing, so they might put the pharmaceutical company logo on their website. They might put it on educational materials. Um, they might put it on newsletters. Uh, they might. Um, mentioned, uh, put it on a conference flyer or something like that. So there'll be a bit of branding going on. They may um, be happy to use pharmaceutical company brand names in their communications with patients. Some, some patient groups won't. Some patient groups insist on always using dr- generic names of drugs, but some will be happy to use the, their sponsor's brand names. Um, some people that I spoke to um, talked about experiences where the pharmaceutical rep would Um, attempt to or be successful with shaping uh, content that was going out to patients so they might say well we can't you can't write that you know in your newsletter we don't like that let's take that bit out Um, so there would be a little bit of that going on Um, certainly um, something that the companies liked and that the patient groups provided was access to the doctors prescribers so a patient group might hold biannual meetings with their stakeholders who would include uh, their medical advisory uh, group, lots of prescribers and the drug company sponsor rep would be invited along to that meeting and they'd get a chance to meet those doctors. They could be off their same terms with them and, um, you know, that's invaluable to pharmaceutical industry. And then the doctors are learning all about that product and learning the name and developing a relationship with that pharmaceutical rep. So there's there's a lot going on there um, behind the scenes that the pharmaceutical industry are benefiting from. Yeah, and when you, they, the um, patient groups put company logos at, on their um, websites, those logos quite frequently hyperlink 
to the website of the company. So a way of um, possibly trying to influence individual members of the group. You look at your, your group's website um, and there's the logo for GlaxoSmithKline or Merck and you can hyperlink to that um, where you're offered more information. Um, but being on being the website of the manufacturer of the company, that information may be skewed in certain directions. I mean, it sounds like marketing to me. Um, I mean, I mean, it's kind of a brilliant yes. marketing plan. If you have the, if you you're bringing a new drug to the market, and then you create a patient group, whether you know behind the scenes, uh, or you're the sponsor, and then you then you basically gather together in one room people who have the specific disease that your drug targets. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> It's it's uh, it seems like a, a good marketing plan. I get it, this is obviously allowed because it's happening. I guess my question is: um, Is this ethical? Is this unethical? Would you call this corrupt? Uh, how would well, there you... are some things that are there are some things that are not allowed, and, and that most of the patient groups I spoke to thought thought okay. should not be allowed and, and didn't do. So, for instance, they wouldn't necessarily um, let a drug rep talk to a bunch of patients. So um, a patient group might hold an information or an education evening for their consumers, for their for their patients and carers, um, and they would they would not let a in drug rep directly talk at that meeting. Um, the the meeting might be um, might have speakers who are doctors or prescribers or other patients, um, but they wouldn't let ac direct access between the drug rep and the patients. Sometimes I had a few people who said to me who worked in patient groups who said, oh, the, um, the drug rep asked for the names and addresses and contact details of all the patients who attended. Of course, we didn't hand those, that information over. But I guess you do wonder about who might hand that information yeah. over. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so there were some boundaries um, that patient groups would draw, but, um, you know, you, you, you it wasn't clear. Some many people I spoke to told stories about seeing those boundaries being transgressed by other patient groups. Now you don't—that's not a first-hand account, and you don't really know what's going on there. But you do wonder, I suppose, how much of those things that many patient groups think are unethical are actually happening. And patient groups are often, or some patient groups, are very sensitive about. Um, studies into their activities. So when we were initiating um, our project a few years ago, we were sending out, we wanted to make sure that we weren't going to be missing any information, any public information that these patient groups had. So we sent a letter to all of them asking them um, if they would send us um, policies, public policies that they had developed about the relationship with um, drug companies. And one or two of the groups um, were very upset about this. One group complained to the dean of the department or the faculty where I was working um, that this was unethical. Um, 
and and tried to get the research shut down. Wow, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And and I guess um, some of the limits to what patient groups will allow seem to be slightly, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably arbitrary is not the word, but you know, on the one hand, they're very careful to keep patient. Um, patients away from drug reps in that educational space like I was talking about but on the other hand um, if they have a big fundraiser like a big fun run or a, um, a ball then they will invite the patients uh, sorry the drug reps to attend um, that fundraiser because the drug reps will be paying for it and so the drug rep will be there mingling obviously with the other um, people fundraising the other patients and so on so there will be contact there um, and the patient group might at the drug company's request send um, a bunch of patients to the drug company offices to talk to the drug company about what patients really want and think and what they need, which again is a very, you know, I mean, supposedly a patient group information to the drug company, but you've got to assume there's quite a lot of two-way um, information happening there. So there can potentially be a lot of um, direct access between the two groups as a result of that sponsorship arrangement. Right, and I mean, it's it's sort of a, I mean, in some ways it's like market research, right? When you, cause you wanna understand yeah. what that person is going through their disease experience. What are they thinking? Mm -hmm. What are they looking for? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's what it's, yeah. And it's, yes, it's market research, but um, at the same time- It looks time, like a duck. <laughs> 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 I, I don't even, <laughs> I mean, that's what I would call it, but um, what were you going to say, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, at, at the same time, it's um, quite a lot of information from the company going back to the patients, which I would call marketing as much as market research. You know. <laughs> right. <laughs> the two things happening simultaneously. Extraordinary. Um, I mean, look, the patient groups are not unaware of this. They know exactly what's right. going on. They're very aware that the money is not being handed out with no expectation of benefit to the industry. They know that the industry is wanting these kinds of opportunities. And that's, you know, that's how, that's how marketing and business works. It's a business arrangement and it's, uh, everybody's going into it with their eyes wide open. I, right. And, and that was my next question. And, um, you know, and I'm sure these patient groups do do a lot of good stuff for their members. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what do they say? I mean, I, I, you know, the ones who were willing to talk to you, um, how do they feel about their relationship with industry and, you know, the expectations? There's a bit of a range. So some people are extremely happy with it. They're extremely confident that they can um, put strong barriers around it and withstand any undue influence. Others are um, quite unhappy about the relationship but really feel that they have no alternative if they're going to maintain the services that they um, want to offer and continue funding the salaries of the people who are working in the patient group. So there's a range. Um, I guess the people, even the people who are confident um, about uh, those boundaries, I would agree with Joel that, you know, the fact that there are limited policies, at least limited policies that are publicly available, does make you, how do we know that those boundaries are secure? It's really hard to, um, to assess. 
And I would also guess that patient groups are not much different from physician groups. Um, if you ask physician groups or physicians who have relations with, um, with industry, either as um, taking meals or being spokespeople for companies, they will almost universally de deny that they're being influenced by that relationship. Um, when in fact, there's quite strong evidence that they are being influenced. So um, one study found that there was a, a meal of under $20, which is about the price of a McDonald's meal, um, would influence um, prescribing in favor of the company that was paying for that meal. And I don't think that um, patient groups are much different than that. They may deny that they're um, being influenced, um, but I think that this gift relationship whereby they're getting money from um, companies is going to have, going to play out in ways that are favorable to the industry from based on what the patient groups do. I mean, in Canada, it's very rare to find patient groups questioning the price of expensive medications. I mean, they're quite, they're pushing for access and that may be quite legitimate, but at the same time, they're not asking why this drug is costing, you know, $1,000 a month. Um, that's interesting. I would think that's like a number one uh, concern. No, yeah, their, concern seems, mm. their concern seems to be more to get the drug publicly funded. Okay. Okay. So someone else picks up the cost. Yeah, the government. Um, okay. Yeah, we found a similar thing from talking to people in Australia, patient groups in Australia, that some of them were quite um, angry with their um, colleagues, really, that there was so limited um, activity targeted at drug companies um, and the money that they were charging for their products. Uh, it, is, it is less common to see that sort of um, concern from patient groups in the public arena. Which I think, you know, if you're getting money from the drug company um, and you, you're going to think twice about turning around and publicly shaming them <laughs> for the money that they're charging for their product. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I, I had a friend who um, was a, a, a patient and an, and an advocate and um, did have a drug company sponsor. And he was um, not thrilled about it, but just sort of viewed it as a necessity you know, as a way to fund his group. Um, yeah. And that was that, it was just sort of like, well, this is, this is, we need their money. Um, and it just, yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's, there are dangers wherever the money is coming from. So if yeah. it's government money, then it can be seen that the patient groups um, are tools of the government. The government doesn't want to spend a lot of money on particular, um, particular drugs or particular diagnostics. 
so that patient groups can be accused of being, you know, of being proxies for government as a way of, of cutting back on government spending. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about how um, patient, if they take money from industry, they can be accused of, um, of, being, of being mouthpieces for industry. Um, and public re- raising money from the public is is pretty difficult unless you're um, a, got a um, unless you're a very high profile. So I think that's possibly some of the um, the cancer groups, breast cancer, might have be have be able to raise money publicly. But most groups, when there's sm- especially groups that represent. Um, patients with a rare disease. These are small groups. Um, nobody will have ever heard of the disease in the first place. Um, so where, and if you want to be able to operate, you can't continue to rely on, on volunteers forever. I think that's a good point, Joel, um, that really it's hard to find other sources of income. One of the models that I've heard about is um, having a, a central fund of money that could perhaps come from a tax on industry like um, pharmaceutical industry and medical device industry or, or whatever. Um, and then that pool of, of money could be distributed by an independent body um, amongst the patient groups. And that, that's one slightly more equitable and hopefully a slightly more arm's length process. I mean, it still does have the inherent issue that the money is coming from industry and therefore the groups might be less inclined to speak out against industry, even if they don't speak out against any one company because they don't know where the money's coming from, they might still not speak out against industry. I mean, I think I would um, perhaps say that the government funding could certainly be stepped up. And I take your point there, Joel, that patient groups could be accused of being uh, mouthpieces for the government, but um, I think nevertheless that's uh, a source of funding that uh, you would hope is a bit more equitable than than using public uh, using um, donations or philanthropy, which, as you said, tend to go to people with um, breasts in their logo or babies or something else um, kind of socially high profile and not necessarily to the most needy um, groups. So it is a really difficult situation for these patient groups. It sounds like a catch twenty two, um, you know where where you get money from. <laughs> um, there's there's no yeah, really I mean, good, uh, an- good answer. No, I, I, I like right. the pool. I like I do like that, um, but I don't know. Would would industry go along with that? Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I mean, another <laughs> another comment, I suppose, is that you know better health funding of the of the health services per se, might mean we have less need to rely on patient groups that are mm. essentially industry-funded. Because at the moment, you know, if, if, if really our patient groups are being kind of um, indirectly driven by industry, then our patients are demanding or wanting or um, requesting industry products that maybe aren't necessarily in their best interest might not be cost efficient might not be the best things out there for that individual um you know arguably 
we could, as a society, save money by upfront better funding of the health services um, without going through the kind of industry interests filter. I think that Lisa's got a very, very good point there. I think that um, one of the reasons that patient groups form is that they feel that they're not being heard by um, by governments, um, that their voices aren't being taken into consideration. Now, I think that's changing, but I think that there's still this perception that um, that patient groups are having decisions made for them, or patients with problems are having decisions made for them rather than participating in those decisions. And if you feel you're being left out of the discussion and you want to get in, then um, you you for, group together um, and then you need money. So that if we were funding, not just funding um, health services better, but also making health services more inclusive of patient voices, that perhaps there would be less need for um, for the for patient groups. Great, well, that's a great point. Um, I, I don't know if that'll if that'll happen. Um, I wanted to ask about patient groups, their influence on health policy. What does that look like? Well, there was a um, a story, probably not true, but that the best way of getting your drug funded um, in Ontario um, was to get either a child or an attractive young woman on the front page of the Globe and Mail, which is the national newspaper. Um. <laughs> Pretty depressing, Joel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, okay. I think there's no doubt. I think there's no doubt that patient groups are influential when it comes to um, policymakers' decisions. Uh, you know, there's, there's uh, they exist to do exactly that, and um, and they are becoming more powerful um, voices in the public arena, and policymakers will respond to that. So, um, you know, that's why. Uh, they're being funded by industry because they do have uh, a position there and they do have some influence over policymakers. It's hard to say exactly, you know, what that looks like. Um, but, um, you know, I think, I think it's pretty clear that the patient groups are able to um, shape um, public um, perceptions and through that to influence policy. You know, and the poster child there really is um, the patient advocacy around AIDS which really kind of kick-started a lot of this off in, in such a big policy-directed way. And then the breast cancer movement has um, taken that on, taken a lot of those lessons and really pushed hard. And subsequently, a lot of the other patient groups have followed suit. So um, there's a lot of things that get done um, because um, awareness is raised and voices are heard through patient group discussions. Yeah, uh and just to the point about influence, um, Canada is currently 
or the the body that sets a um, a maximum price for newly introduced patented drugs in Canada is proposing changes um, that would lower drug prices. And those changes have now been put off four times. And one of the reasons seems to be um, patient group lobbying against those changes, um, arguing that if prices are too low in Canada, that companies won't introduce their new products um, and that will harm the, um, the patients. Well, that's interesting. Um, but it's still, I mean, it's a, it's a move for industry. In- it, it is. Um, I think so. That patient groups... Um, well, they feel they have sometimes to do it. This is, yeah, the, this yeah. is out of desperation. I mean, yeah. you know, you've got some some diseases for which there is no effective treatment. So, yeah. ALS, for instance, Lou, Gehrig, Lou Gehrig's disease, no effective treatment. And if you think that there's something out there on the horizon that may prolong life significantly, you're going to want that product on the market as quickly as possible. And if the companies are saying well, if you drop the price that you're willing to pay too low, we're just not going to bother. It's not going to be worth our while. Then those patient groups um, can get very upset. Yeah. What well, I mean, and that, that makes perfect sense. It does. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I guess it's has, I mean, I guess if you, if there, if you know, the, how much funding they're getting is there's no, uh, rule that this has to be publicized or anything. Is there any research though showing that you know pa- patient groups that get more funding from industry have more of an influence on health policy? Is it just safe to is it safe to say that, or that really just hasn't been studied? I think it's very hard to say that, but certainly I think that's the inference that you can draw. I mean, when I again speaking to the patient groups in Australia. Really, what we found was that the ones who are getting money are the ones that have products um, or are focusing on on available products. But the ones who um, are not pro-industry or um, interested in industry interests are just not getting the same amount of money. And so their voices are just either going to disappear or they're going to be quite a lot smaller. And I think that's just, you know, that's that's just how it is. Yeah. You know, if you've got the money, you've got a bigger voice. If you have got no money, you've gone. Uh, you know, it's it's That's not so about bad. paying your way into um, a politician's pocket or anything. It's just a simple matter of if you're there, you're there. If you're not there, you're not being there. <laughs> you're not at the table, you're not there. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. If, if you don't have the money, um, you can't send representatives to, well, in our case, Ottawa, in Australia's case, to Canberra to talk to the politicians. Um, yeah. You know, these are big countries, long distances, mm-hmm. costs money to, to fly people from one end of the country to the other. And if that money's not there, your voice is, is not going to be heard as much. Right, right. Or you yeah. might not even have a patient group left. You might not have any yeah. volunteers or any staff. Yeah. Right. Now, there are... 
patient groups, I would imagine, that are, are critical of uh, industry. But they... Yep, there are a few. <laughs> um, around for a so, certain amount of time. <laughs> well, you know, some of the groups that are, that are critical of industry um, have kept going, I think, largely because of um, the, the, the dynamics of the people who are involved. So there's one group that's been around in Canada for quite a while um, of people with type one diabetes and are critical of the um, industry bringing out the new forms of insulin and then mm. getting the old forms um, deleted, sure. the, which were less expensive. There's another, there's a breast cancer group um, that's been around since I think the 1980s or 1990s that is critical of, um, of industry, but these groups are pretty far and few between. Hmm. They are, and even if they're critical, they may find themselves not openly voicing that criticism or even, um, you know, occasionally accepting a little bit of funding from the industry because um, the rest of the group uh, feels they should or because they um, feel that they have no option if they want to pursue the activities that they've got planned for that year. So uh, even the critical ones, things change and um, they're not necessarily as separate from the industry as perhaps they would like to be when they talk about this topic. The ones that I say are um, perhaps more able to be critical and independent are the the, the health consumer groups that we talked about right at the beginning were all the sort of the more health service focused groups who have um, ongoing government funding. But, you know, that doesn't exist in every country. So it's uh, mm -hmm. not, not necessarily there in the US, I'm not sure. But Canada. It's um, kind of it's uh, depressing to hear, you know, in all these podcasts, and this was how much uh, power and influence industry has. Just seems it's just like massive. I don't know. Industry is, I mean, they're run by very smart people, these companies. Um, they have lots of money. If you look at the Fortune 500 reports year over year, the pharmaceutical industry is typically in the top three in terms of profitability. Um, in the US, um, the pharmaceutical industry has I think it's two, two lobbyists for every member of the House of Congress. Wow. Um, so industry has tremendous amounts of money to be able to spend to try and get what it wants. Um, and that far exceeds what anybody else has, including doctors groups, let alone patient groups. Um, yeah, it's a very strong influence. Uh, so um, I, get, I guess my last question here, um, or feel free to chime in if, 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 uh, if you feel anything else needs to be said, but um, what are ways to, viable ways or ways that might see the light of day to make this process better? I guess we're more, more patient focused versus you know, profit focus, which is ultimately what uh, industry, a business cares about. 
I think there's a couple of options there, you know, and what we talked about earlier is really better funding of health services and more inclusive health services so that people are not feeling so disenfranchised and feeling the need. So that's kind of one big issue that we're weirdly not going to be able to solve and manage today in our podcast. um, I suppose... um, at a perhaps a slightly smaller um, su- suggestion would be to encourage patient groups themselves to think about this topic and to um, really read up and educate um, themselves and their membership about about potential for harm from industry influence. To think about setting up a policy, and you know we've we've had meetings with patient groups and talked about drawing up a template policy that patient groups could adapt to their their needs uh, about what they will and won't accept uh, when they're interacting with industry. And I think that would be great. And that policy could be publicly available so that people could see it on the website. It could include very easy to access information for the public about where money is coming from or what the money is being used from um, for, for patient groups. So I think I'd really like to see patient groups taking some leads here and some initiatives here. And I'd really like are people who use patient groups. So that's doctors who may suggest to their patients about a patient group and, and that's the people themselves, who patients and carers who are um, accessing patient group services and activities, um, really having a voice here and saying publicly, we'd really like more information. We'd really like to see what your checks and balances are as a patient group. And we really want this if we're going to continue using your and supporting you as a patient group. So I think that there's a a lot of us who all could really um, speak out about this and talk about this and ask some more questions. And I think that would that would be what I would like to see in the short term until we get better um, government funding for our health services and inclusive patient um, needs. Yeah, and I think that in addition to what Lisa said, which I definitely support, we can also look at some possibly structural changes. So make it, if you want um, your group to have charitable status um, and be able to issue charitable status receipts for the money you get, then you have to report um, not only your total revenue, but you have to report each individual donor and how much they gave you. Um, And that should be, that would, information would be publicly available so that you could look up and see that one group gets 1% of its income from industry and another group gets 50% of its um, income. Now that won't necessarily tell you um, whether or not the poli- what the actions of the groups um, are favorable or not to, the, to their donors, but it gives you a starting point to be able to ask some questions. I like those ideas and those ideas aren't far-fetched. They're, I, they're things that you can see them implementing, you know, not like 10 years from now, but right now, some of them. Mm, yeah yeah i think maybe i don't know who's listening to this podcast (laughs) (laughs) um there might be some people in dc who listen to it um that's where our policymakers are Um, yeah i don't know if they listen in ottawa (laughs) 
I hope they do. Um, I've had a couple of, of people in Canada now on the podcast, so maybe, um, and a few in Australia too. So who knows? Who knows? Um, it's, it's a wide range uh, for the target audience, but um, maybe. Any, anyways, um, Joel and Lisa, thank you so much for your time. This was very interesting um, and kind of, you know, shines a light on this area that not a lot of people really know about. And then, you know, there's some good suggestions there. I always like to end on a positive note. Um, so, you know, in terms of how do you make the system better? Um, I think there's some good suggestions there and maybe, um, someone will listen and, and do it. And, and, um, I don't know, do you guys have any closing words or. Well, thanks very much for having us, Erin. And it's great. I mean, yeah. there's people like you talking about this and making it public and, um, you know, encouraging some discussion that I think it's going to, um, enact some change. So it's really great to see your interest too. Oh yeah, I'm trying. Yeah. I, I just hope I'm not on a like industry's dartboard or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crowded space there, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. You can <laughs> join Lisa and me on that <laughs> dartboard. Okay. I mean, I've heard stories and I'm like, uh, I don't know. But um, yeah, I think it's important to talk about these things. So as long as I have this podcast, I'm gonna uh, make sure I use it for that purpose. So well, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you guys. You know, I know you're very busy for coming on and um, talking about it and um, please feel free if there's any other, I, I know you, you often have given me suggestions too, in terms of, Oh, look at this, look at that. And so if there's anything else you think I should, you know, you know, um, focus on or um, do a podcast on, please just email me and let me know. All right. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. You guys have been in the trenches you know, doing the research, all the hard work. So <laughs> just reach out anytime and um, enjoy the rest of, well, your, your night in Canada. And then I guess your day in, in Australia, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, all right. All right, guys, have a good. Um, Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I hope you subscribe, stick around, share the podcast. This is a totally grassroots independent podcast. So there's no funding or anything like that. It's just conversations, <laughs> conversations with interesting and smart people. Um, if you want to reach me, you can do so through my website, bloomingwellness.com and connect to my social media places that way. Um, or read some of the blogs I write. Just don't read the blogs categorized as other. Those are like advertising blogs and people submit them and I don't read them at all. So I think a lot of them are awful. <clears throat> Just being honest. Anyways, I digress. Um, <laughs> I hope to see you guys here next time. And uh, yeah, that's it. I have some interesting episodes coming up. I think you guys will like them. All right. Have fun out there. Be good. Be kind. All that. Talk soon. Bye.